Bible reading today is 1 Corinthians 5, and it can be found on page 1774 in, your, in the Black Bibles. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out, your fellow, out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus Christ is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Thank you, Marin. I think we need to pray. Okay, let's do it. Father in heaven, thank you that you love your church. Thank you that it is precious to you. Thank you that here we can find grace and forgiveness because we're all broken and we all need help. But help us now to know what it means to have to deal with sin in our midst. None of us claims to be perfect. This is complicated. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my... Um, sense is that after spending four weeks on dealing with the issue of division and leadership, uh, you're probably all ready to move on to a new topic, <laughs> except <laughs> after chapter four comes chapter five, and what we've just read is shocking and confusing on multiple levels. There's outrageous sin, which is shocking in a church, and there's severe discipline, handing someone over to Satan, casting them out. Uh, if you had to put your finger on what this chapter is about, it's about dealing with sin and expelling people. This chapter highlights a real problem for the church. Isn't this unloving? Uh, didn't Jesus hang out with sinners? He wasn't like the Pharisees who judged people. He saw every person, as a broken person, a sinner who, who was to be welcomed by God, the prodigal son. Who amongst us can cast stones at other people? 
Isn't the church meant to be a safe place for sinners where we can be open about sin and not feel like we need to hide lest we be judged? So isn't it unloving? And then suppose that you did kick such a person out. Isn't it ineffective? Because wouldn't they just go to the church just down the road? Wouldn't it be better to keep that person at church to let the word of God do its work? And then beside all that, isn't one of the biggest barriers today in Australia for people coming to church precisely this, that Christians are judged as being judgmental? This chapter is a big problem for the church today. And it highlighted a big problem for the Corinthian church. Here's a case of sexual immorality in the church that is eye-popping even for the pagans. A man is having sex with his stepmother, not just in a once-off, but in an ongoing relationship. This was something that was even offensive to a pagan's conscience. Cicero said that this was an unbelievable crime which he'd only ever heard of once in his life. And here it is, happening in church. What's worst about it is that such behaviour is celebrated by the Corinthians. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you are proud. They're proud. This raises the question of how should Christians react to sin? Now, okay, let's just assume all Christians have a concern for moral purity and a concern for people. So imagine now a two-by-two matrix with a kind of high and low regard for, sorry, people along here and a high and low regard for moral purity as the axes. Each quadrant represents different ways that Christians and churches deal with sin. If you've got a low regard for people and a low regard for moral purity, what will your reaction be? Well, apathy and indifference. Who cares what people do? We don't. Okay, that's one response. If you've got a low regard for people but a high regard for moral purity, what's your reaction? Legalism. Okay, impose laws on everyone who's struggling and self-righteously condemn those who fail. Switch that around. If you've got a high regard for people and low in regard to moral purity, you have a third response. This is the Corinthian response, which is to be proud, to celebrate the sin, boast in their freedom. You can imagine exactly the words they're saying. All our sins are forgiven in Jesus' name. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus died for all our sins to set us free. God is a God of grace. We're not under law. So it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. Sound familiar? Okay, this year, of course, in Australia, we've seen the Uniting Church now grant freedom to, uh, for clergy to conduct same-sex weddings. It happened in the Anglican Church in New Zealand that was passed this year. Guess what will probably be coming up in our synod um, in the Anglican Diocese of Adelaide in October. I haven't seen the motions put forward, but it's bound to come up. The language, of course, will be celebrating inclusiveness supposedly out of a high regard for people, but we know from a biblical standpoint, is actually a low regard for moral purity. Then there's a fourth option, high regard for moral purity, high regard for people. This is the Christian option. What is it? It's grief. Paul says, you're proud. 
shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? It's exactly uh, the reaction that happened across Australian churches because of the scourge of child abuse. Um, mourning, deep mourning, and repentance and prayer. And of course this was felt not just amongst Christians but in the wider community too. Grief over the damage done to children uh, grief over the damage done to Christ, to his name, to his body, to the church, to his people. It's what Paul says the Corinthians should have felt. And then they should have acted on it. Shouldn't you rather have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? And that's what he recommends. In numerous times he says it different ways. Putting out the, that person out of fellowship, handing him over to Satan, not associating with him, expelling the immoral brother from amongst you. It's the same thing. So this chapter highlights a big problem for the church, for the Corinthian church, and you may have picked it up, it points out a big problem for us in our church. How so? You think, I, we, surely we haven't got an example of immorality of this nature, have we? Not as far as I know. But when Paul says in verse one, it's been reported that there is sexual immorality amongst you, the word for sexual immorality in the Greek is the word porneia from which we get pornography. In the Bible, it was a term which was an umbrella term, a catch-all term, to describe all sexual activity outside of marriage, which is the right context that God provides, a safe and good context for sexual activity to happen. But if you were to go to a place like Leviticus 18, you'll see what that includes, and there is mentioned all the possible varieties of incest, such as, yes, a man having sex with his father's wife, but also includes other things detestable to the Lord, and it says it, adultery, having sex with someone who's not your spouse, or homosexual sex, a man lying with a man as with a woman. Now we know that in our culture and on our screens, that stuff is increasingly becoming normalized. It's available to us to see at the click of a button and in a group like this, many of us are guilty of tuning in with our eyes and our minds, if not our bodies. Now, if that's not you, and maybe you're tempted to, just tempted to feel a bit self-righteous at this point, please keep in mind that Jesus uses exactly the same term, porneia, in Mark 7, to describe the sinful desires that naturally come out of all of us, out of all of our hearts and minds, making all of us unclean. Jesus says, out of the heart comes Porneia, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, and he goes on. The point is, from Jesus himself, that this exists within all of us. We are broken, we are fallen, there is something not right. So that even if we haven't acted it out, Jesus said, we're deficient and broken and fallen, including the air, in the area of our sexuality. Now that means that there is no one who is perfect in this area, no one who hasn't done damage to themselves or to other people, no one who hasn't sinned, or maybe if you haven't yet, <laughs> no one who won't, given the fullness of time. Because it's raised, we have to say, if you've viewed porn, you've done damage to yourself, you've done damage to your spouse, or to your future spouse, and you've done indirect damage to people involved in that industry which is so harmful to them because you've created a demand. 
So this chapter highlights a real problem, not just for the Corinthians or the church, but for us as well. And it has to be said, even if you've got this area of your life under control, did you notice how in verses 10 and 11, Paul expands out that list of sinners from the sexually immoral to anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is also greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. And so that levels the playing field, doesn't it? Ever cheated on your tax? You've swindled the rest of us. Ever been obsessed with owning the new car, the new house, the new jacket, um, building your share portfolio? This is greed. Ever given your soul to your AFL team, uh, to that special person, to your job, more to the Lord than to the Lord? This is idolatry. Now, please hear what Paul's not saying, okay? We have to be really clear. Paul is not saying that if you have ever lapsed in any of these areas, then you automatically need to leave the church. That would make for a pretty small church in the end. What he's talking about here is not people who who struggle with these issues and repent and are grieved by them, but someone who is who sins so often that their their sin becomes their identity. Someone like this man who who claims to be a Christian, but they don't show any remorse, any repentance. They sin with a high hand. And this is just meant to be accepted. So this chapter is highlighting a real problem for the church, for the Corinthians, and for ourselves. Now, the right response is a collective grief over such entrenched sin. And then the action in this case, is expelling the person from your church gathering. Okay, now there's questions about this. How is this a loving solution? You know, what makes this the right course of action and not a pharisaical one? Well, firstly, please note that this is from Jesus himself. In verses three and four, Paul tells them that as an apostle of Jesus, they have his authority, he's with them in spirit, he has already cast judgment on the man in the name of the Lord Jesus, And he says, when you gather together in the name of the Lord Jesus for the purpose of dealing with the sin, the power of the Lord Jesus himself will be present. And we think, well, how is that so? You'll have heard Jesus' words, when two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am with uh, with them. That promise comes from Matthew 18, but the context of that is not just any normal gathering of Christians together, but get together for the purpose of church discipline. That's the context. Paul says, you gather together in Jesus' name and then the power of Jesus is present because here is the body of Christ, Christ's members being ruled by him and in that context, you're to hand this man over to Satan, meaning you're to tell him that until he repents, he is not welcome to fellowship with Christ or with his people. Now, in my experience, this is very rarely done. Uh, I don't know if it's ever been done in your experience in any church you've been part of. Maybe you've had a good experience of this. Maybe you've had a very bad experience where this was done very poorly. Of course, it's a tricky situation and of course things will be said against um, the situation even when it's done as well as possible. Because it's hard, isn't it? It's discipline. 
and discipline is hard and disciplining adults, are hard, it, that's hard. Well, we might ask, how, how is this being like Jesus who, who frankly loves people and is a friend to tax collectors and sinners? Well, the answer comes out in the goal, the intention of what's happened. This action, as drastic as it seems, is done with two goals in mind. Firstly, for the sake of the sinner himself, for his own sake. Verse 5, so that his flesh, meaning that his, his sinful nature, which is controlling him at present, might be destroyed, but his spirit saved on the day of judgment. Salvation is at stake for this guy. This man's cavalier attitude to sin his embracing of it as if it's just like the air that he breathes, has made his salvation in jeopardy. We think, hang on, how does that work? Isn't he saved by Jesus? Didn't Jesus die for all his sins? Now, just think about that, what you're saying there. Yes, of course Jesus died for all of our sins. But are you inferring, and would this man be inferring, and would the church be inferring if they just went along with this, that yes, salvation is complete, but at our souls are saved, but in the end, it doesn't matter what we do with our bodies. Is that what we let, we'll end up saying? And if that's the case, is that really true? Is it true that when we sin in our body, it does no damage to our souls? No. We remember the whole reason Jesus suffered in the flesh was because of sins done by us in the flesh, which puts our souls in jeopardy. So you can't disregard God in your body, and we know this, you can't do that and expect to fellowship with him in your spirit. We just can't divide ourselves like that, and it's a delusion to think that we can. So in the case of someone who's sinning in the body and not repenting, and they're kidding themselves, their relationship with God is fine, they're deluded. And Paul tells the church to take drastic action to come together in the name of the Lord Jesus and then expel him, drastic, why? So that he'll wake up to himself, he'll repent and then be saved. He needs to be jolted out of his blasé blindness. Now that is not going to happen if he keeps getting high fives every time he works, walks in the front of the church door. Okay, it requires drastic action, tough love for his sake. But it's also loving to do it, secondly, for the sake of the church. Because remember that for Paul, even more serious than this man's sin was the fact that the Corinthians were now celebrating it. They were boasting in it. They were proud. Paul says, your boasting is not good. What's the issue? He says, don't you know? Think of, think of cooking, right? Don't you remember? how a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough. Now, for your non-baker, who's a baker here? Who bakes? Kathy, Phil, good on you, Phil, good on you. Debbie, all right, we've got some bakers here. Now, I'm told, I've never done this myself. Correct me if I'm wrong, please yell out. I'm told when you make dough for bread, you need to put in yeast because otherwise it won't rise. It needs to work through the whole dough. Is that right? Yeah, okay. Um, all right, the point is, is that if sin like this, which is known and not only not repented of, but tolerated, in fact, more than tolerated, but celebrated, 
If sin is like that, is, is left in the church, it's going to have a corrupting influence on the whole body, like yeast in dough. It's going to work through. And so the loving solution for the sake of the church is to take this drastic step of discipline. And finally, it's a loving solution for the world. You might think that if the sexually immoral should be expelled from the church, then we should have nothing to do from anyone in the world who's sexually immoral. But not so, actually. Verse 9, Paul, when Paul says, don't associate with sexually immoral people, he's not meaning unbelievers, the people of this world who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, he says, you'd have to leave the world. Now, I need to hear this because if I'm speaking with a non-Christian guy and in the course of our conversation, I realise that he's being unfaithful to his wife, my natural instinct is to want to back away from him and to separate myself from him. Actually, Paul is saying, don't do that. No, we need to be like Jesus who is a friend of sinners. So Paul's telling us... um, Sorry, what Paul's telling us to do cannot be taken that we should totally withdraw from the world like the monks used to. Okay, that was a mistake that they did. Instead, he's giving a solution which maintains high regard for people, high regard for moral purity. A solution that's loving for the sinner, the church and the world. Okay, now does that sound perfectly okay with you now? Not yet, I'm thinking. Because as it stands, it still doesn't explain how this squares with Jesus who loved sinners but apparently becomes then very tough on his followers. It doesn't explain how, someone, how, how someone's salvation could be in jeopardy if they get, in, get stuck with sin and it's not dealt with. You know, why is this a salvation issue for this man? What does Paul see that we're not seeing? Why does the gospel seem such good news for sinners before they believe but then become so demanding of sinners once they've taken that step of initially believing. Okay, so now we get to the heart of the issue. What Paul does is very kind. He gives us a key, a key which unlocks our confusion and which puts things straight. A key, a surprising key, because it seems weird. It's not immediately apparent how this is relevant. It reaches right back into Israel's history to their greatest feast. This is the key. In verse 7, strangely, apparently out of the blue, he says, you see, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's the key he gives. He's drawing a connection between Christ's death and the Jewish Passover feast. Now, I'm saying it's a surprising key because the Corinthian church are largely Gentile, not Jewish. And yet somehow Paul says the key to understanding why they are to exercise church discipline and why they are to expel the immoral sinner from their midst has to do with the Jewish Passover. This is why they should get rid of the old yeast, he says, because Christ, your Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So, let's go deep into this key. All right, let's remember, the setting is the exodus. Now, um, about 10 days ago, my daughter Sally caught a flight, a Greek flight on a Greek airline from uh, Athens to Rome. I don't know if she was sitting on the, um, the door, the wing, not on the wing, but, you know, inside there. Uh, she would have read a sign on the exit door if she was there, 
uh, the sign over the wing in case of an emergency, she would have read the word Exodus. Because that door was the way out at a great time of peril. Israel, God's people, were in great peril. They needed an out, a doorway out, which God provided. And the exodus, the way out, the doorway out of their great peril was not just to escape Egypt, but actually more than that, to escape the very imminent threat of God's judgment, which was going to fall upon the whole land. And you'll remember the story of the plagues. The big threat that was going to come upon them was that they themselves would fall under the tenth plague, the worst plague, the plague of death of the firstborn, which was going to be inflicted when the angel of death passed over the whole land of Egypt and the firstborn son in every house in Egypt would die. Well, how were the Israelites to escape this? What was their exodus out? Well, God provided it. They were to mark, you know the story, they were to mark the door frames of their house with the blood of a sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb. So God gives the instruction to Moses. Moses tell everyone, everyone has to mark the door frames of their house with this blood, the blood of the Passover lamb. Every household has to slaughter um, a lamb, cook it without, cook it and then eat it along with unleavened bread, baked quickly without yeast because they didn't have time for the bread to rise. They had to get up and on their feet and go that very night. Most of us know the story. There's two important truths. The first is that God himself is responsible for this great deliverance of his people. God is the one who brings the plagues. God is the one who judges Egypt and her gods. God specifies the means through which the angel of death would pass over each Israelite house and fall on the Egyptians, not them. God himself is responsible for this great deliverance. And yet there's another, another truth in this story, and that is that the Israelites themselves are also responsible for their deliverance. How so? Because it was personally up to each one of them to obey the Lord, to slaughter the lamb, to mark their doorframe with the blood of the lamb. If they didn't do it, then the judgment that fell on their house was exactly the same as the judgment that fell on Israel. This was an in or out, whose side are you on sort of issue. You can imagine what it would have been like that night being the oldest Israelite boy in the house. Just think for a moment. Your name is Ben. Your father slaughters the lamb. Your mother prepares the dinner. The family eat quickly but your father hasn't yet put the blood on the door frame your parents they know that you've got a lot of walking to do that night so they tell you and your younger brothers and sisters to go to bed to get some sleep well you listen to the breathing of your brothers and sisters and you can hear them as they gently sort of calm down and become regular in their breathing they're asleep but you're not asleep because midnight's coming and you know what's going to happen at midnight unless there's blood on, that door, on your doorframe. You, you cannot fall asleep. Your heart is racing. And you get up and you walk into where your parents are and they're getting things ready and they're packing, packing all their belongings because they know you're going to leave that night. And you say, have you put the blood on the doorframe yet? And they, they say, no, we haven't. But um, go to bed, get some sleep. We'll, we'll, in fact, we'll come in and we'll tell you. You go back into your bedroom. But you, you, you can't fall asleep. Midnight's now closer, and you're wondering, how close is the angel of death? Has he reached the outskirts of Egypt yet? 
And then your dad comes in and he says, it's all right, Ben, you can go to sleep. I've put the blood on the door frame. And slowly you drift off to sleep and you don't hear the wailing and the crying that happens around Egypt that night until your parents shake you and tell you to get up, it's time to go. But you're alive. You've been saved. The angel of death has passed over your house and you're spared because of the blood of the lamb provided by God, but which was appropriated for you and for your house. That first Passover is a picture to us of what Christ has done. He is the Passover lamb, the one lamb. His blood shed once for all on the cross. That's how God achieves the deliverance. He is how we're saved from God's judgment, which will fall on others. But the judgment which will pass over, who, who? Well, everyone, Jews and Gentiles, who've personally taken the step of aligning themselves with the blood of the Lamb. It was as if when the Passover angel, sorry, the angel of death passed over, it was as if when they saw the sign on that doorframe, it was a message saying, a life has already been given for the sake of the firstborn in this house. You can go. And at the cross, it's like if you've been marked out with that blood, if you've accepted Christ's death for you on the day of judgment, a life, a precious life, the precious life of the Son of God has already been given for this man, for this woman, for this boy, this girl. They're spared. They're spared. The question is, have you appropriated that for yourself? Have you said yes? I want to be marked out with that blood. Have you done it? Now you might think, what on earth does this have to do with church discipline? <laughs> Think back to the Passover, because it hasn't finished yet. That night, as well as eating the Passover lamb, the Israelite families ate bread cooked without yeast, because they ate in haste. They had no time to let the bread rise. And so every year after that first exodus, when the Jews would celebrate the Passover, they would eat unleavened bread, bread made without yeast. And, and this was a reminder, it served another function, that when God brought them out of Egypt, they became his that's when the Hebrews became the people of God. And God became their God. And eating the bread made without yeast was a reminder that they were leaving their old way of life behind, their old sinful way of life, because they were now becoming like him, who was holy, who was without sin. And so every Passover, Jewish kids would scour the household beforehand. They'd hunt out for any skerrick of yeast. A reminder that in their lives as God's people, they had to leave sin behind because who they were was a people not just saved by the Lord, but saved to be holy, to be his, to belong to him. And this then explains the need for church discipline. In the case of known sin, which is not repented of, but cheat repeated often and flaunted. This is sin done with a high hand. This is sin without remorse, without repentance, without any sense that I am grieving the Lord who has saved me. This is not an occasional lapse which you fight and repent of and then you cling to the blood of the Passover lamb. No, 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 this is something different. This is making mockery of the blood of the Passover lamb who's delivered you 
This is not caring about your own behaviour and in the Bible it says this is wickedness. In other words, your sin, you, sorry, you are more aligned with your sin than with Christ. That defines you now. You see, keep on going on that and sin becomes your identity. Keep on coming to church and sinning with a high hand and be accepted and you'll be deluded that this is okay. Keep on doing that and you'll become infectious to the whole body. So what should we do? Paul says, keep the festival. Actually, the word is celebrate. Celebrate the festival. Not meaning the literal Jewish Passover festival. No, no, no. But what that pointed to, keep doing in Christ what the Jews did. Get rid of the old yeast of sin so that you may become the new unleavened batch as you really are. You know, live up to your identity. He says, because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. You've been bought out. And he says, this is to be celebrated, not just kept with kind of grim resignation and serious dour expression. Celebrated. Why? Because God's way, the way you've been liberated to live is really the best. It really is. You know, it's so tempting in our lowest moments to think the grass is always greener on the other side. So in the area of sexuality, it's easy for married people to think, if only I wasn't married, or if only I was married to someone else. And it's easy for single people to think, well, if only I was married. Okay? And it's not true. Because as good as even the best marriage can be, that itself in the Bible is only an illustration of a greater reality, which all, a greater marriage, which all of us will be part of, the marriage that's at the end of the Bible, the marriage between the bridegroom Christ and his bride, the church. Marriage and sex within marriage, as good as that can be, is only an illustration of a greater reality. Um, the important thing in life is not whether you're married or not. You will all be, we will all be married to Christ. You think, hang on, but that's not going to involve sex. Sex is good, right? So, no, no, no. As good as sex can be in the right context, as good as it can be in the best marriage, that itself is not the reality. That's only looking forward to a greater reality, our union with Christ as his bride. Now, we don't understand the relational sense of all that. We're not there yet. That's why we've got an illustration which points us forward. But what we need to realise is that for married people, your own marriage is not, you, ha you know, you haven't landed yet. <laughs> the greater reality is coming. And for single people, you will be married and you'll experience the best one. Now, this means, I think, that, um, you know, in our, in our churches, you know, we, we need to correct ourselves. We can idolise marriage so much that we push our single people into thinking that they're incomplete if they've never had sex or they've never been married. Now, that is a lie. How do we know that's a lie? Because Jesus himself, he was a virgin. I mean, he died without being married and without having sex, and yet he was the most complete human being who has ever lived. Sex doesn't make you a complete human being, and that needs to be said because in our culture, we are taught again and again, and everyone, you know, accepted on our screens that unless you have sex, you're incomplete as a human being. Not true. Not true. 
We need in our church to celebrate the status of singleness as well as marriage. And we'll, more of this in two weeks' time. But back to 1 Corinthians. How do we celebrate the festival today? Paul tells us to think outside and inside the church body. Outside the church body. You can't stop meeting with people who are sexually immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters, otherwise we would have to leave the world. And God has saved us so that we would actually draw people in. We are not to judge them. Judgment of those outside the church is God's business, not ours. Instead, we are to try and share Christ. We are to try and draw people in. But what about those inside? Well, of course, everyone inside the church, we are all broken. We are still works in progress. All of us deal with sinful promptings from within. But there's another reality too. Verse 7 We are saved to be a new unleavened batch, a people who live without sin, who are holy. And that means that the normal internal struggle with sin, which all of us deal with, that's normal. And church needs to be a safe place where we can share that with one another and where we can grieve with one another and help one another and repent together and keep taking us back to Christ's blood, which covers us completely. That's normal family functioning. But if there is the case of someone who is sinning with a high hand, who doesn't care about their repentance, um, who claims to be a brother or sister in Christ, who sins without remorse, who's confused in their identity, okay, Paul says it's up to the rest of us to love that person, to take their sin seriously. Verse 11, he says the way you're to do it is to exercise tough love. You've got to not even associate nor even eat with such people for their sakes, for our sakes, and for Christ's sake, so that they will repent and then be restored. And that, brothers and sisters, is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is so tricky. Forgive us when we have got this wrong, forgive us for when we haven't repented of our own sin when we need to, forgive us for sins done in private, for sins that have damaged the people that we love. Our great God, we remember that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. But help us to keep the festival, celebrate it, know that your ways are best, and help us to deal with sin in our midst. And may in this body, may in every one of us, there be genuine grief um, when we've, we've strayed. And if there's anyone here who's trapped and who doesn't care because their consciences is blunt, are blunted, please, Father, uh, soften them. Soften them and may your word today soften them and bring them to repentance in Jesus' name. Amen.